is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Let's open the Word of God together. One more time, would you please? This time to the Gospel according to John. And I want you to pick up right where we left off last night in John chapter number 21. Because you'll remember, Peter has this amazing experience with Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then, immediately after that, Peter continues to have a conversation with Christ. And another disciple gets drawn into the conversation. The funny thing about it is, the man who gets drawn into the conversation is the guy who's writing the book. Look at the book. What gospel record are we in? The gospel according to what? John. So tonight, we're talking about Jesus and John. And I saved him last. I saved him last on purpose. He was actually the last living disciple. He outlived all the rest. It might interest you to know that Peter, we believe, was the oldest of the original disciples. He was kind of the, the senior man, if you will. He was the elder. And because of that, the Lord commissioned him and gave him a big job when he was off the scene. James, everybody remember James? you got the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. James was the first to die. And so Peter's the oldest. James is the first to die. John, the man who writes this book and the man that we're about to study tonight, was actually the youngest of all of the disciples. And because of that, when Jesus has ascended back to heaven and all the rest of the disciples have already passed off the scene and been martyred for their faith, John is the last living disciple and he writes this record. Let's read just a little bit. Look at John chapter 21. Verse number 19, Jesus has been talking, This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. That's Peter. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, say the next two words, please, follow me. We come full circle all the way back to where we started. Verse 20, then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Everybody take your pen and underline the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. And then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said, Not unto him he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Stop and look at me just a minute. Isn't that just like we read into things, you know? We, we, we expect, we think we know what it means. So they, they started a rumor. How many of you ever heard a rumor? 
How many of you ever repeated a rumor? Yeah, it's bad, really bad. And the rumors always get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the rumor was John's not going to die. He's going to live forever. He's going to live till Jesus comes back the second time. How many of you know John died and Jesus hadn't come back yet? Yes? So that wasn't true, and he clarifies in just a moment that that was not the case, but that's what they were reading into it. Jesus is trying to say to Peter, leave that guy alone. It's not your business what he does, and it's not your business what I do with him. You've got to answer for yourself. Look here. You can't answer for anybody else in this room tonight, but you will answer for you. And so we hear the words ringing in our ears again and echoing in our souls, follow me, Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And here is John who, interestingly enough, look what the Bible says in verse number 20, is following. And this was striking to me. John is following without any fanfare. Like Peter, he's making a big deal about it. John is just quietly following. Peter is asking lots of questions. John is just quietly, humbly following. Peter is comparing himself with John, and John is just quietly following Jesus. You know what we do sometimes? Sometimes we make, we make a big scene, make it all about us, and sometimes we, we just pepper the Lord with all these questions because we're trying to figure it all out, and sometimes we compare ourselves with everybody else, and the Bible says if you compare yourself by yourself, you're not wise because that's not the comparison. That's not the measurement. You're, you're not competing against anybody else in your youth group or in this room. You, your job is very simple tonight. It is this. You get close to Jesus, and you follow him. Look at verse number 24. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. I love this. John said, hey, I'm the guy that was there. I know what I'm talking about. I saw him with my own eyes. I heard the conversation with my own ears. I'm not just, I'm not just telling you about something that is secondhand. I'm telling you the truth because I was there. And we come to the last verse of John's writing. John chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And all God's people said, Amen. And John is called in Scripture the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus only loved John. Because in fact, the Bible says plainly in Scripture that having loved his own, meaning all the disciples, he loved them unto the end. We even saw the other night, he even loved Judas to the end. He called him a friend, a friend of sinners, all the way to the moment of the betrayal in the garden. So it doesn't mean that he just loved John. And it doesn't mean that he loved John more than he loved everybody else. I used to think that meant that that Jesus just really, he really liked John. How many of you know it's easier to like some people than others? Yes? Don't point at anybody. Just raise your hand, all right? It's easier to love some people than others. I get that. Some are more lovable than others. But it doesn't mean that Jesus loved him more. Then I'm going to tell you how I know that. Because God's love is perfect, which means that he loves all people. And he loves all people perfectly. You can't add anything to the love of God. And you can't take anything away from the love of God. Because God is love. So what could it mean that this is the disciple known as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, in proximity, John was always closest to Jesus. 
They would even lounge at dinner time. They didn't have tables like we do. They had tables where they would lounge. They would lean on their elbows around little tables. And so they're leaning uh, on one another basically around the table as they break bread. John was always the one leaning on Jesus. He, he was, might, might I say it this way, the Lord's right-hand man. He, he was the one closest to his heart, if you will. This was a man who was not content just to be a disciple. See, some of you, you're content just to say you're a Christian. That's fine. All right. So you got enough Jesus to not go to hell. That's, that's what you want. You just want enough Jesus to go to heaven someday? Or do you really want to know today what the Lord Jesus has for your life? John wasn't content just to be a disciple. John was not even just content to be an inner circle disciple. See, some of you think, well, I'm better than I used to be. I'm better than he is. I, I do more than she does. I'm more faithful than they are. You're measured by the wrong standard entirely. Because it's not enough to be a disciple or to be seen as an inner circle disciple. Within the inner circle, here is a disciple that has a certain intimacy and a certain relationship with Jesus that seems to be closer in its fellowship than any other disciple. And look, I can't speak for you and I'm just speaking for me. I'm going to tell you what I want for my life. I want to live in the presence of Jesus. I want to talk to him every day. I want to hear his voice. I said to the Lord when I got up this morning, I was tired when I got up this morning. Anybody else have the camp hangover today? Yes, some of you still living it, aren't you? I got up this morning, I was a little tired, and I got a cup of coffee, and I was trying to get with the program, and I had to come down here and speak to you. And I sat down at the table, and I opened my Bible, and I didn't open my Bible to get a sermon, and I didn't open my Bible to look over what I was going to talk to you about today. I opened my Bible first, and I said to the Lord, Lord, I need to hear your voice this morning. Lord, I need something for my soul. I don't need something for them. I need something for me. God, speak to me. And I said to the Lord this morning, personally, Lord, the greatest desire I have today is I want to be close to you. I wonder, is that your desire? Do you really want to be close to Jesus? You can be as close to Jesus as you want to be. He's not playing hide and seek. He's there. But John was the one who made him the pursuit. John was the one who got as close as he possibly could. I'm thinking now about the words of Moses in the Old Testament when he said, show me now thy glory that I may know thee. I'm thinking of the words of the Apostle Paul after being saved for 30 years. 30 years he's been saved. And he's writing scripture. What's his prayer? Oh, Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Hear the words of the psalmist as the heart, as the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Listen to Jesus. Blessed are they, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Where are the young men who are hungry for God in this generation? Where are the young women who want Christ more than anything? Where are the young people in this room and in your church and in your community and in our country who desire nothing but to know God and make Him known? That was the heart of John. And I think that's why the Lord let him get so close. You see, it's kind of like with your children. How many of you know that you can have relationship with that fellowship? That means you can still call them mom and dad, but that doesn't mean you're close. And sometimes, sometimes, some of the children get closer to mom and dad than the others do. Look, please, God's not playing favorites tonight, but there is a divine favor that comes into the life of the child who wants to do what the Heavenly Father says. And I believe the secret to John's life was not that he was perfect, 
Not that he was better than all the rest of the disciples. No, I think the secret was this. He was willing to simply believe and obey and follow if the circumstances weren't good, if nobody else did it, if he didn't understand it. John had just made up his mind, I'm following Jesus. Let me prove to you what I'm talking about. We're coming right back, all right? Go back a few pages in John to John 13. Take a little journey with me, all right? Let's, let's walk through this. Look at John 13 for a second. Because here's one of the first times you see this in John's example. Look at John 13, verse 23. They're, they're sitting around the table. They're having what we would call the Last Supper. Remember that? And look at John 13, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, mark it in please, John 13, 23, whom Jesus loved. This is really interesting to me. Simon Peter, who always seemed to know what to say and always wanted to talk, in verse 24, asked John to ask the question. How many of you ever asked somebody else to ask the teacher the question because you didn't want to ask the question? Yes? So Peter, big brash, big mouth Peter, looks at John, kind of motions for him and says, you ask him. And you know what's really interesting? John does ask the question, but I think it's fascinating. He got to ask because he was closest to the Lord Jesus. Oh, I love this, kids. Listen to me now. When you get close to Jesus, you will have an access and ability in prayer to commune with God and to talk to God. It's just so natural and wonderful, better than any friend you have on earth. I don't know who your best friend is. I hope you have a lot of good friends. But there is not a friend like Jesus. Not anywhere in this world, friends. And I want you to know that when you get the heart of John, you get to the heart of Jesus. You have access to pray and to commune and to talk. Turn a page, would you please? Come over with me to John chapter number 18 for just a minute. Look at John chapter 18. Jesus has been arrested now. He's in the house of Caiaphas. We've seen this already in Simon Peter. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Did you ever notice that in the Bible? I always had in my mind Peter was the only one at the trial. Be honest. How many of you had that in your mind? Like he kind of slipped in the back, and he's the only guy there? No, no. There was another disciple there. I was just in this palace. I was just in the palace. Now, in full disclosure, uh, the, the old city of Jerusalem right now is probably in places 30 feet above the actual place where Jesus and the disciples would have walked because of the, the civilizations built on top of it through the centuries. But in a certain palace where Jesus was taken for the trial, in that, in that certain fortress area, archaeologists have now uncovered the floor. I saw it for myself. The floor where a lot of these trials took place. And on the floor, there are games like on the floor, like where they gambled. Sound familiar? Remember in the gospel records when they gambled for the coat of Jesus and, and the soldiers sat down and they were, they were playing games? They've actually discovered places like that in this fortress where Jesus was taken. So Peter is there, but look at verse 15, and another disciple. And that disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without... Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. You compare Scripture to Scripture, you're going to find out this is John. This is amazing. Peter and John always seem to be together. 
Well, now John is there, and this is what's striking to me. When Peter gets inside the hall, he's scared to death to tell a teenage girl he knows Jesus. But John, who was known to the high priest who's in charge of the trial, who was known to the people who were, who were putting Jesus on trial that night, is bold and unashamed about being inside that room. This is powerful. At the crisis hour, John was there. I'm going to tell you when you can tell most about people's spirituality. It's not times like this. Look, friends, this is easy. When you're in a religious, excuse me, a religious pep rally, and everybody's saying, man, you're doing so good. I'm proud of you. And, man, I'm glad for the decision you made. And, man, keep reading your Bible. You're doing good. And, and girls, you're doing great this week. I mean, when, when you're in that environment, it's easy to take your stand for Jesus. But I want you to know, when you got the lions circling around you, and Satan's staring you in the face, and all the hounds of hell have come against you, and the, and the devil brings out the big guns, then we'll be tested whether you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. It is the crisis hour that reveals whether we're serious about our decision to follow Jesus. John, he's there. In the upper room, he's there. In, in the high priest's palace, he's there. Turn another page, would you please? Come to chapter number 19. Jesus is on the cross. Guess who's there? Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. By the way, I'm glad all these women are here. You girls look at me just a second. God designed it for men to lead. That's the Bible way. Men are supposed to lead their homes, and they're supposed to lead in the local New Testament church. But I want you to know, I thank God for a godly mother. I praise God for godly grandmothers and a godly wife God gave me 26 years ago. And two girls the Lord has let us raise. You girls, don't you think for a second God can't use you. There was a whole group of women who followed Jesus and led others to do the same. And God used them in a powerful way. And when he's hanging on the cross, look who's at the foot of the cross. The women are. But gentlemen, I want to say a word to you tonight. We got a whole generation of passive men. And it is time for some of God's men who really know and love Jesus to find their place and do their part and stand up and speak up for Christ the, the, the most spiritual people in your youth group shouldn't be the girls having to lead the charge and drag the boys along uh, to, to try to get something done for the Lord. Gentlemen, it is time we stand up and do our part for Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed of you when he went to the cross, so don't you be ashamed to identify with him. Look at verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, would you mark this? And the disciple standing by whom he loved. The only disciple at the cross. Now, they all forsook him and fled for a while, but John comes back. We all have our moments of failure and weakness. We all have our moments of cowardice. Let's just get real for a minute. Even the man talking to you right now, we've all had our times where we depart. The question is, how quick are you going to come back? What's it going to take you to come back? And the first guy that comes back around and the only man of the original disciples standing at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die was John. Look what Jesus says. He says to his mother, woman, Behold thy son, re referencing John. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Let me ask you a question. What could Jesus trust you with? Jesus is dying. He's 33. He's 33. In that, in that custom, it was the son's responsibility to take care of his mother. For the record, this one's extra, all right? You ought to take care of your parents. And as they get older, 
you ought to care for those who cared for you. But in that custom, it was a dishonor if you didn't take care of the elderly. And his daddy, Joseph, the earthly father, is already gone. Remember, Joseph was much older than Mary. By the time Jesus is 33, Joseph is dead. That's why there's no mention of Joseph later in Jesus' life, only, only Mary. So Joseph is off the scene. Jesus is the oldest son. He's 33 and dying. And imagine hanging on that cross looking at your mother standing down there. By the way, that's one of the greatest evidences Jesus is who he said he is. You ever think about this? If, that, if this was all made up and Mary and Joseph had concocted this, don't you think when his mother saw her son hanging on that cross, bleeding and dying, she would have said, look, come down from the cross. We made it all up. We, we, it's all a joke. We, we lied to you when you were a boy. Let's, let's tell them the truth now. Don't kill my son. But she doesn't. She stands there quietly and she watches Jesus bleed and die on the cross. You know why? Because she of all people knew who he was. He was the virgin-born son of God. And at that moment, he's not just her son. At that moment, he is her Savior. Mary knew exactly who he was. Standing next to Mary is one man. It's John. And this is profound to me. Jesus looks at Mary and motions to John and says, There's your son now. And he looks John in the face. Imagine being John. Jesus hanging on the cross looking at you. And he says, She's your mother now. You take care of her. John's a kind of man that has such in integrity and character and commitment and faithfulness. He may not be the flashiest. He probably wasn't as good a speaker as, as Simon Peter. He wasn't used the same way Simon Peter was in that way. But this was a man who was a true follower of Jesus Christ. Turn another page. Come with me to chapter number 20. The first day of the week, verse 1. Cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark into the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, mark this please, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb. John gets there first, and Peter finally gets there, sucking wind out of breath, and runs in, and John goes in with him. But look here, at the upper room, who's there? John's there. Uh, at the cross, who's there? John's there. At, at the high priest palace, who's there? John's there. At the tomb, who's there? John's there. Turn a page, come back to chapter 21. All the disciples have gone out fishing now. And there's a figure. Look at him off yonder on the shore. Can you see him? We can't quite make out who he is through the mist. There's somebody over there waving his arms and saying, Hey, fellas, come on in. We made breakfast for you. Trying to figure out who it is. Look at verse number 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat into him for he was naked and he cast himself into the sea. It'd be just like Peter to jump in the water and swim to shore, wouldn't it? Instead of getting the boat there. But did you ever notice it was John that recognized him? Tell you something interesting. You get real close to Jesus, God will give you a discernment you can't have on your own. You'll start seeing things in the Bible. You'll start seeing the Lord at work in your life. You'll start recognizing the work of God in somebody else's life. You know why that is? Because God gives insight to those who are intimate disciples. God gives a certain perspective to those who will sit very near to Him. Look at, the, look at our list here. At every juncture in this story, at the hard moments... John was a faithful follower. Interestingly enough, when you read his writings, John talks about himself in the third person. Now, he's writing it. He could have said, yeah, I was there. 
I mean, good night. If you were there, you'd post that on social media, would you not? Wouldn't you say, I'm one of the first, I was there? He doesn't. Instead, he writes in the third person, there's a humility about him. He's not arrogant at all, and yet, in his humility, there is still a certainty. In fact, you you all know his favorite word? If you read John and read his later writings, his favorite word is the word know, K-N-O-W. He said, I want you to know. Matter of fact, back up to chapter 20, look at verse number 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. He said, I want you to believe. When you come to 1 John He said those who believe may know that they have eternal life. There's a certainty about it. You know what I'm praying right now? Look here. I'm praying God will put some steel in your soul tonight, some some strength in your faith, so when you leave here, you'll be more like John than any of the rest of them. Peter was detoured by his denial. He was detoured by his denial. Thomas, we talked about Thomas, he was defined by his questions. Judas He lived a lie. But John, John was guided by the certainty that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and I am going to follow him. I'm looking at a vast crowd of young people tonight. It's thrilling to me. You know why? There's enough young people in this room to turn the world upside down. Turn the world upside down. See, when I come to the last night of camp, I'm not even preaching for tonight. I'm not even thinking about tonight. I'm thinking about the rest of your life. I'm thinking about six months from now. I'm thinking, you ever line up a bunch of dominoes and watch the chain reaction? That's what I'm thinking about. What kind of of thing will be set in motion out of this meeting? See, John was the youngest. Watch this. And the youngest disciple had the most lasting impact. In fact, by the time the story is done, anybody know what he's referred to? He's, not, he's never referred to as the youngest. He's referred to later in the New Testament as the elder. I hate to tell you this. It's going to discourage some of you. I'm really sorry. But you're not going to be young forever. And soon you're going to be the elder. I remember I was preaching in a youth meeting one night, and I said something about being young. It's been a while ago. I said something about being young. When we got in the car, my wife's always very encouraging. And she said, there was one thing tonight you said you probably need to stop saying. Stop saying you're young. And I'm like, I am young. She said, not to them you're not. And that's probably right. Because old is always 10 years older than whatever you are. But I'm looking at you right now, and I'm laughing on the inside. You know why? Because you're not going to be this age forever. No, you're going to be. See all those old people back there along the back? You're going to be like the elders. And you know what I'm wondering? Hey, hey, hey. I'm wondering who will pastor that church in the next generation? Who will be the youth director to bring the kids to camp? Who will lead the choir? Who will play the instruments? Who who will teach the children? Who's going to do that in your generation? Some John, some young man or young woman has to say, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be a true follower of Jesus and let God use your life. This is the story of Jesus and John. I'll give you three little applications tonight. And they're based on the three things John wrote. (laughs) Let's see if you know. What's the first thing he wrote? Anybody want to take a guess? Hint, hint, look down. What is the first thing you think he wrote? The gospel record, right. So number one, he wrote the gospel record. You know what the gospel record's all about? This is tough. Anybody want to guess? The gospel, it's a smart crowd, very good. 
So the gospel record is all about the good news of Jesus. You know why I wrote the gospel record? To help people know Jesus as their Savior. Then he wrote what we call the three little Johns. First John, second John, third John. How many of you ever saw that at the end of your New Testament? Same guy. He wrote John to get him saved, but when he writes first John, second John, and third John, he writes to people who are already saved. He calls them the little children of God. And you know why he writes to them? So that they'll have assurance, so that they'll have fullness of joy. So that they'll be encouraged and built up. Here's a man. Here's a man who tried to get people saved and then tried to encourage all the other saved people he possibly could. And then there's one more thing he wrote. Anybody know what it is? That's right. Last book of your New Testament, last book of the Bible was written by John from the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you know what he, he showed us in that? He lived the rest of his days with an eye on eternity. I want you to write down three things tonight, would you please? The same three things John did, I'm going to challenge you to do. Number one, I'm going to challenge you to try to get the gospel to as many people as you can. Nobody's going to write any more scripture, no more scripture being written, but you can live by scripture and you can get scripture out and you can let God use you. How many of you are going to heaven? Raise your hand, please. Going to heaven? All right, now put your hand down. Let me ask you a different question. Don't answer out loud. Who are you taking with you? When you get there, who will point at you and say, that young man led me to Jesus? That young lady, she brought me to Christ. That youth group, they prayed for me till I got saved. Now that, that little group of guys in our high school, they started a Bible club and invited me to come one day. And that, that group of girls, they, they stayed after me till I found out the truth about who Jesus was. I'm asking you tonight, not, not just are you glad you're going to heaven, but who would you be glad someday could point at you and say, that person is the one who pointed me to Christ. Did you know John was written much after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of like parallels, you can compare them. They're very similar. John is really different. It's called the interpretive gospel. It was written much later to basically interpret all of the events and teachings that were recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know what we need right now in this generation, young people? We need some gospel interpreters. Matter of fact, in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian's making his way to the celestial city, he stops by the interpreter's house, and somebody has to help him understand. We're living in a world that doesn't know God. We're living in a world that doesn't even open a Bible. We're living in a world where Jesus Christ is just a curse word. You know what they need? They need to meet somebody that actually knows Jesus who can interpret for them what the truth is about the way of salvation and eternal life. A few years ago, I was coming back from a meeting Young lady got on the airplane, sat down next to me. She was from Germany. I found out she was an astrophysicist. <laughs> That's a little intimidating, you know. Then she found out I was a preacher. Did you know when you're flying at 30,000 feet and people find out you're a preacher, they're either really glad to be sitting next to you or really wish they weren't. Did you know that? And this young lady was happy about it. I was a little intimidated, frankly, and I was trying to figure out where to start with her. And so I just started here. I said, do you believe, I knew she was a scientist. I said, do you believe there is a creator? Without any hesitation, she said to me, I believe there must be something greater than us. 
She said, I can't imagine that all this just happened. Very intelligent, very articulate young woman. She said, there has to be something. And then, before I could say anything, she looked me in the eye and she said, do you believe there's a creator? I said, oh, yes, I do. I said, matter of fact, I'd like to tell you about it. And for the next hour, she asked me questions. It was one of the most fascinating conversations. She, she wanted to know about God and the Bible and, and eternity and, and, and why Jesus had come. And, I mean, she's just she's hungry. She's searching. And when we finished our conversation, though she did not get saved that day, and I've prayed for salvation, she looked at me and she said, I have waited for years to meet somebody like you that could answer my questions and tell me about God. I got to tell you, instead of being happy, I got under such conviction. Because I started thinking how many people I've sat next to or met, and I never started the conversation. I, I never offered them a gospel track. I never said a word about my faith. I never spoke anything about Jesus. I had a divine appointment, and I missed my moment. I'm telling you, you're going to see a lot more lost people than I've preached to this week where you're going and if you will let you, God will use you to get the gospel to them and help bring some of them to Jesus. Then write down a second thing. Not only must you work to get the gospel to people, but number two, encourage fellow Christians in your local church. That's what 1st, 2nd, 3rd John's all about. You study them for yourself. Read them this week. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Be easy to find. You know, it's full of encouragement. You know what I've figured out right now? Everybody's having a hard time. Everybody. Everybody back home that you're going to see on Sunday needs encouragement. You people that got saved this week, a whole bunch of you got saved this week. You need to follow the Lord Jesus and believers' baptism in your church. You want to talk about encouraging pastor and people in your local church? You follow Jesus in baptism, publicly identify with him. Nothing could be more encouraging than that. Go into your church on Sunday. And don't drag in. Get there early and walk around and speak to people and tell somebody back home what Jesus did in your heart at camp. Give a testimony. You're going to go outside here in a little bit and give a testimony. And I'm glad about that. But the greatest testimony you're going to give is not a camp. The greatest testimony you're going to give is the one you give back home. There's lots of people didn't get to come spend the week with us studying the Bible. Some of them are really discouraged. Some of them are depressed. Some of them are trying to figure out if life's worth living. If they've got anything to look forward to in the future, they need to meet somebody that's had a fresh glimpse of Jesus and got their faith stirred up who speak a good word and encourage their heart. I'm telling you, God can use you. Even the way you've listened to me preach this week has been tremendously encouraging. Well, let's just get real. Some, some young people in church, they don't listen that way. They're looking down at the floor and, and act like they're bored. You encourage your pastor this week. Carry your Bible. Open the Bible. Follow along. Get something out of the message. Respond when he preaches. Nod your head every now and then. You know, everybody ought to have to preach one sermon in their life just to look at what we have to look at. How many of you ever said amen in your whole life? Would you raise your hand? Let's try it one time. Ready? Amen. Are you glad to be saved? Anybody looking forward to going to heaven someday? Okay. Then every now and then it's all right to give a holy grunt in church and say amen and at least have a pleasant look on your face. I said to somebody in this room last night, a bunch of people came to speak, and I said to a particular person in this room, thank you for the way you listen to preaching. I think it surprised him. I said, I wish everybody listened like you did. It encourages me. I, I see people in an audience, and I see people who seem to be engaged. It's encouraging. Look, John. 
Get some lost people saved. Get the gospel out. And then you be an encourager. You be a blessing. You don't push people down. Lift people up. Don't bully somebody. Encourage somebody. A good word still makes the heart glad. The only exhortation in a church doesn't come from a pulpit. It comes from people sitting in the pews. You let God use you right where you are. Second and third John are two of the most neglected books in the whole Bible. They're only half a page long, both of them. Two of the shortest books of the New Testament. You know, one of them was written to a woman and the other one was written to a man. And both of them were written to encourage an individual. You girls, you girls, you ought to find you a lady back home, somebody older than you that you can encourage. You ought to find you a younger girl who's struggling and encourage her. You, you gentlemen, you ought to find you a man that you can encourage in the Lord and pray for. You ought to find you a young man that you can set an example for. Let God use your life. And then there's a third truth. Would you write it down? Not only should you give the gospel as John did and encourage others as John did, but number three, and this is very personal, you must live in the light of eternity. That's what revelation is. Revelation 1, he got a glimpse of Jesus high and holy, lifted up, exalted in all of his glory, and it changed him forever. Funny thing, he was on an island. Somebody said, that sounds really nice. Not that island. On the Isle of Patmos, it was a, a colony where criminals were sent. And the only people on the island were really, really bad people. The outcast and offscoring of society nobody wanted, so they kicked them off to the Isle of Patmos, and they had to live out there and just labor out there. And I love this. That's where God met John. <laughs> Some of you are already anxious about going back home. You're worried about what you're going to face when you get there. You're already getting worked up on the inside about who you're going to see when you get there. I'm telling you, God will meet you in the worst places if you will just keep your eyes on Jesus. You know what Revelation is? It's everything that John got to see, not just about the end times, about eternity. He saw, I'm going to preach on this Sunday in the church where I'm going. He saw the new heaven. He saw the new earth. He saw the new Jerusalem. He saw all of that from the Isle of Patmos. Yeah, when you get your eyes on the Lord Jesus, the Lord will help you start living in light of eternity. Don't waste your life on time. Invest your life in eternity. And if, like John, you will give the gospel and encourage others and live in the light of eternity, young people, God will use your life in ways beyond anything you ever imagined. When I was about 14 years of age, a youth director, college student really, came to our church for the summer to do a youth internship. He took me with him out during the day witnessing. He, he introduced me to Christian music. One day we were in his car. It really wasn't much of a car. It was an old beat down truck. It was terrible, but... He, he riding along, and he had a book in between us. And I said, what is this? It was old. Hardcover, yellow pages, no pictures, not my favorite at the time. I said, what is this? He said, that's the life story of a young man named William Borden. He said, you can have it. He said, I just read it. I want you to read it. I thanked him, took it, stuck it on a shelf. It looked good. I'd never read it. In fact, I did not read it until I was 25 years of age, and I know I was 25 years of age when I read it because when I got to the end of the book, I discovered that William Borden died when he was 25. 
And it's, it just hit me, and I thought to myself, if my life ended right now, would anything I've done have counted for eternity? William Borden was a spoiled rich kid. He had more money, inherited the Borden fortune. He loved boating, had his own yacht, had everything you could imagine. One night, he went to a meeting like this. And God got a hold of him. And William Borden said, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. He got a burden from Muslim people in China at the time. And he determined he was going to become a missionary. He was a student at Yale University. As a matter of fact, the name of the book is Borden of Yale. One morning, he went to a chapel service. He and two or three buddies prayed in their dorm room before they went to the service that God would speak to them. And that morning, a, a man by the name of S.D. Gordon that most people have never even heard of wrote some amazing books. S.D. Gordon was speaking that day, and he was speaking out of that passage where Jesus said that if a person would believe on the Lord, out of his belly would flow rivers of living water, meaning life would come out of him. He was talking about the Holy Spirit working through him. And S.D. Gordon just made a little comment and said this, that's the difference between the world's way and the Lord's way. The world's way is into, the Lord's way is out of. And he said to those college students, you can spend the rest of your life trying to get all you can and cram it all into your life, into, 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 but you'll be miserable. If you learn to live out of and let God work in and through your life, it'll be the most fulfilling thing you ever do. Borden went back to his room that day and took out his journal and wrote, today I learned that I don't want to live a life into, I want to live the life out of, I give my life to the Lord. A woman from England came to visit the United States. She toured all of America for several weeks, and when she was getting ready to leave boarding a boat, someone said to her, what's the greatest thing you saw in America? She started weeping. She said, the greatest thing I saw in America? She said, there was a young millionaire at a rescue mission on his knees with his arm around a drunk telling him that Jesus loved him. That was William Borden. Borden gave all of his money away. <laughs> he gave it all away. He kept just enough to get to the mission field. They said he was crazy. He took his Bible out. He opened to the front flyleaf. You know these little blank pages in your Bible? He found a, a flyleaf in his Bible like this, and he wrote two words, no reserve. And he set sail. He went to the Middle East to study the language, Cairo, Egypt, in fact. I've been in Cairo. It's an oppressive city. And that's where he went to study the language to get ready to reach Muslim people. And while he was there, he got sick. He was 25, very sick. And they said to him, you, you, better, you better go home. And he said, God has me here. If I die here, I die here. And he took his Bible out, and underneath where he had written no reserve, he wrote two more words, no retreat. They sent for his mother. They said, if you want to see Bill Borden, they called him. If you want to see Bill again before he dies, you better come quickly. And she got on an ocean liner and made her way across the sea, but she didn't get there in time. And at 25 years of age, William Borden died. They wrote him up in the newspapers. Borden dies a fool. 
Borden dies penniless. Young millionaire dies a pauper. They didn't get it. When his mother got there, she picked up his Bible and opened it up. She turned to the front flyleaf and she saw where he had written no reserve and no retreat. And just beneath it, in his scribbled handwriting, he had written two final words before he died. He wrote these words, no regrets. In Cairo, Egypt today, in a cemetery where most people never go, is a grave marker overgrown with moss and things. But if you pull it back and look carefully, it says William Borden. And underneath it, it says this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Young people, there's a whole lot of normal people just kind of floating downstream doing their thing. But God wants to do something out of the ordinary with your life. If you'll trust him and obey him, look, if you'll follow him, I promise you, Jesus will do more with your life than you ever could. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.